Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. My name is Paul Caruana Galizia, and this is episode two of My Mother's Murder. In the first episode, we heard about the day my mother, Daphne, a pioneering journalist who reported on corrupt politicians and businessmen, was assassinated. But how did it all come to this? That day in October 2017, we were shocked and we were horrified, but we weren't surprised. My mother was always abused and harassed by the people she exposed over her 30-year career, but things got worse a lot worse, after 2013. That was the year that Joseph Muscat became Prime Minister. Some people thought his election was a new dawn for Malta, a young modernizer bringing the Labour Party and Malta into the 21st century. But the thing about Malta is, new dawns don't always turn out well. The abuse didn't start under Muscat. My first memory of violent abuse targeted at her comes from 1994. I was six years old, and my mother had picked me and my two brothers up from school that day, as she always did, and when we finally got to the front door of our house, we saw that our border collie, Messalina, was dead, and its body was laid across the doorstep and it had a puddle of blood around its neck. My mother quickly hurried us inside and said, look, don't worry, she probably just ate snail poison, which is something that had happened to another one of our dogs, and then went back out, cleared away the corpse, and came back in to make us lunch. And it was only until many years later, when I was about 14 years old, that she said almost in passing that actually Messalina had had her throat slit. And that time when our front door caught fire wasn't me, she said, just accidentally dropping a candle and setting the door alight. It was an arson attack. And it was for the same reason that Messalina was killed. So for most of our childhood, my mother could shield us from these kind of attacks. But when we became teenagers and so more aware of her work and its implications, these attacks were brought closer to home. When I was back home in Bidnia, I took my producer Gary on a tour of the garden around our house, and I told him a story 
about the first major violent attack on my mother's life. You can see a lot of the trees I grew up around. So a mulberry tree over there in the corner, which used to build a tree house on. A pomegranate tree, which is still really productive and we used to make pomegranate juice. And here, a mock orange tree, which is actually quite close to my bedroom. And if you look at it, you can see it's been really badly damaged in a fire. When I was about 18, 17 years old, there was a major arson attack on the house where a group of people came up to the house from the valley at the back carrying a pile of car tires and bottles filled with petrol and lined them up against the side of the house right here by the mock orange tree and set them alight. I just happened to be coming home at about two in the morning that night and walking to the house on the other side saw this huge fire and thick black smoke coming up. And I thought initially, because it's something we used to do, I thought what a strange time for a bonfire. Um, then ran in, woke up my parents, and as my mother was calling the emergency services, my father and I were throwing soil on the fire. So luckily it didn't spread into the house. And the tree got badly damaged because a lot of the petrol seeped onto the soil and the flames kind of followed it onto the soil and up the tree. And we thought it was going to kill the tree, but in the end what happened is this really strange thing where almost like the inner bark of the tree died and peeled away and broke off and then this new trunk formed around it so it's got this strange really unusual shape you know 13 whatever years later it's still getting rid of that dead wood you can just pull it out quite amazing i think but it's alive we had to harden ourselves against these attacks, and we did. But events took a turn for the worse in 2013. After more than two decades of Nationalist Party rule, Joseph Muscat and his Labour Party came to power. Despite my mother's concerns, for some people, this new era inspired hope. And yeah, I think there was overwhelming sense of hope in the country that we could uh, really start to enter this new era of a more liberal, progressive... I wanted to speak um, to Chris Perrigine to find out why some people were taken in by what Muscat had to offer. Chris was at school with my brother Andrew and he now runs a popular news site in Malta. There was a sense of hope that things were really going to turn around. Yeah, it's always strange. As a journalist, you're, you're always really trying to be objective at all times. But at the same time, you're a citizen with a vote and you, you exercise that vote, right? And even though I came from a largely nationalist upbringing, I was very turned off by the, the nationalist opposition to divorce and gay rights. You know, I was a 20-something gay man myself and, and thinking, you know, this is just like not the, the future I want for, my, for myself and for my country. So, so I, I voted uh, Labour and and I was just as hopeful as, as most people who voted Labour. And I was also very comfortably voting uh, for the Red Labour Party for the first time. For a lot of people, there was a sense that Muscat was finally going to bridge Malta's bitter partisan divide. But for my mother, 
it was just a show, and that divide was as big and as deep as it had ever been. The greatest problem in Maltese society is that it's a clash of two cultures. And because it's such a small population and the territory is so limited, those cultures are in head-on confrontation. The divide you can hear my mother talking about is deeper, it's more ingrained and it's older than the partisan divide that Muscato's promising to bridge. And his party media didn't even change. It continued to vilify and to dehumanize my mother. I, I know people who never read her, whose information about her is what they got through party media, and who absolutely loathe her. Still. The thing about Malta's media landscape is that it's dominated by the two major political parties, the Labour Party and the Nationalist Party. Each party owns its own TV station, radio station and daily newspapers. Supporters of the Labour Party in particular rely almost exclusively on Labour Party-owned media to get their information. I mean, that adds to controversy because you are a figure in the general imagination, even if it's not really you. With Muscat, the threats didn't just escalate. They took on new forms. So up until 2013, my mother had been sued for libel just 15 times. 15 times from 1989 to 2012. But from 2013 onwards, she was sued 51 times. And every single suit was filed either by a government official or Labour Party official, except for four suits filed by the opposition leader. And we're still fighting these suits to this day. A libel suit doesn't sound scary to someone who hasn't experienced it, and it won't sound scary to someone who knows their reporting is fair and accurate. But when it's weaponized in this way, at this scale, it is crippling. It's time-consuming, it's expensive, and it's demoralizing. So in a sense that the, the judicial, this judicial uh, kind of intimidation is perhaps... Yes. No, it's very bad. Okay. So you have a situation where laws, where the, the spirit of the law was designed to protect people who are genuinely liable and genuinely yes. hurt, is being used as a tool of abuse and aggression by people in power against people with no power. Okay. It's a complete okay. reverse. Okay. Uh-huh. Absolutely. While the new tactic of intimidation was libel action, the old ways of harassing and abusing my mother continued. So in 2013, after Joseph Muscat was elected prime minister, my mother, quite early in the year, had gone for a walk with two of her friends and they were walking around Rabat. So this is something she used to do. She used to like walking around... Uh, Malta's old villages with friends taking photos that she'd use for her magazines. And out of nowhere, a man and two women started following her. They started slowly at first chanting the Labour Party slogan, Malta's also ours, Malta's also ours. They started getting closer. She kept telling them to stay away, stay away, or she'd call the police. Then more people joined this man and two women and it became a mob and 
it got to a point where my mother and her friends had to actually run away from them. The power is ours now, they kept saying, we have power now, we have power now, Muscat is our leader, we have power now. My mother and her friends eventually got to this big old wooden door, which they recognised as a monastery, and started banging on the door, saying, please let us in, we're being chased, we're being chased, please let us in. Eventually, two friars ran to the door, quickly opened it, and almost like in a film, where, you know, you're being chased by a monster down some corridor and you just make it through the door in time and shut that monster out. They did that. And it was almost like one of these biblical scenes, you know, where you have this angry mob baying for someone's blood and telling the monks, bring her out, bring her out to us, the mob. And eventually, after calling the police, they turned up and... The mob didn't even deny what they were doing. And I think that's telling, you know, because they their response to the police was the sense that why are you stopping us? You know, everyone hates her, everyone wants her dead. Let us get on with it. Why don't you help us bring her out? I remember when she came home um, and called me and she was just really blown away by it. She thought... This guy really thought that he wasn't simply not breaking the law. He thought he was providing a service to the multi-state. He thought he was doing something good. Looking back on that episode in Rabat, I realised that what those labour officials taught why they were so confident that they wouldn't be prosecuted, is that once the Labour Party was in government, it had enormous power, and it used that power to exploit every single one of our institutional weaknesses. Is my voice coming true? Yes, they were, yeah. <clears throat> That's Vanni Bonello. He's a former judge at the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, today, the executive power of the state, which means the prime minister and cabinet, uh, have uh, virtually taken over all the other institutions which were meant to control the uh, executive. The attorney general, the police, the commission of police, parts of the judiciary are more than suspect. They give the impression that they are in the pocket of the persons they are supposed to keep in check. So there is a total collapse of the uh, checks and balances which the constitution imposes on the multi-state. And that matters a lot when there is a lot of suspicion about government corruption. (laughs) It matters a lot in any circumstance, particularly so when one of the chief suspects of ill-doing is the government itself, is the executive itself. Uh, It is under suspicious uh, pall of uh, being in in league with major criminals. It is suspected of being under the control of the really big business interests in Malta. So everything depends on the goodwill of the Prime Minister. What went wrong is that a system is as good as the people who work it, who who put it in practice. So there have always been abuses. It's not as if uh, the previous governments were immaculate, but before it was the exception putting your brother or your secretary 
as judge was the exception. When the exception becomes the rule, so it's time to rethink it very well. I believe very much not in the laws and in the systems, I believe in people. Uh, up to some time ago, it was relatively good people who were working a weak system. Now, the, 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 the situation has changed drastically. The, the weakness of the systems are still there, but they are being worked by people who don't care about integrity. You know, with this institutional setup and the corruption we're seeing, um, did something like what happened to my mother surprise you? No, I predicted it. Okay. I actually had written a few months before that she was condemned to death. How do you mean? I, I mean that uh, seeing the symptoms around me, and I had no doubt that that would be the, the, the outcome of her crusade against corruption and against abuse of power. Once uh, impunity becomes the standard, mm -hmm. uh, once abuse of power becomes the standard and there are no checks and balances on abuse of power, uh, the lone voice crying in the wilderness is standing out for assassination. And that's my mother. And that's your mother. It's those institutional weaknesses that meant my mother was a lone voice. But there was another problem about her reporting in Malta. The country is so small, its society is so closely bound up, she often found herself writing about friends, relatives and neighbours. Talking about Malta society, um, I always say that's like living in the novel, The Crucible, the play, The Crucible. I don't know if you ever watched a play or the film with this, this witch hunt in this, um, 17th century Salem. And you watch it and you think, oh, well, this is like Malta, but different clothes. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like living like that. And this all comes from um, growing up, living your whole life from the cradle to the grave, surrounded by the exact same people. So any offence you caused when you were 20 years old is still going to be freaking this other person out when you're both 70 years old, you know, and it's going to be dogging you and following you. So nobody does anything to upset anybody else. Okay. So it creates a very uncritical environment. Yes, completely uncritical. I was living outside Malta for most of this period. I was in Berlin, so I wasn't experiencing up close what my mother was going through. But I had a sense that things were getting more tense. So I would read her blog multiple times a day, every day, like the rest of the country, and we'd speak over the phone a number of times every week. And in one of our phone calls in February 2016, she said to me that she's working on something big. I knew it was serious because my mother didn't always tell me about the stories that she was working on. And when she began to talk about this story, I realised it was bigger than I could have possibly imagined. She told me that a few months earlier, journalists at a German newspaper called the Süddeutsche Zeitung received an enormous leak of data. 11.5 million documents, in fact, covering legal and financial information on 215,000 companies going back to the 1970s. It was so big that these journalists couldn't cope with it alone, and they began seeking out partner journalists in countries all over the world. My mother was their journalist in Malta. Hello, Mr. Hello. 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 Hello.
This leak came to be known as the Panama Papers, and it opened the window onto financial crime and corruption in countless countries across the world. Some of the people the leak exposed were in Malta. One of them was a senior cabinet minister, Konrad Mitzi. And my mother immediately thought, why does a cabinet minister own a secret company in a notoriously secretive jurisdiction like Panama and then shielded that company with a trust in New Zealand? She smelt a rat. In a libel suit Mitzi filed against my mother on a totally unrelated story, he tried to persuade the... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. Senior business leaders in the UK are keen to harness AI, but there's a complex regulatory maze emerging globally. The OECD, a group of the world's richest countries, which includes the UK, has adopted a new set of principles to ensure that AI operates in a way that's safe, fair and trustworthy. The principles are wide-ranging, but in essence, call for AI systems to be designed in a way that respects the rule of law and human rights, and says there should be transparency around their use. By embracing the core principles of responsible innovation, UK business leaders can better explore sector-specific opportunities and emerging trends without compromising on citizens' trust. Find out more at ey.ai. ...that my mother wasn't a journalist because she didn't have a press card. And my mother finally lost her patience. She stormed out of the courtroom that day, but before leaving, turned to Mitzi and said to him, Your lawyers think rather a lot of you. Do they know where you hide your money? And Mitzi knew straight away that my mother was onto him. He jumped off the court bench and started shouting at the magistrate, She's threatening me. Stop her. She's threatening me. My mother laughed at him and then walked out of the courtroom. When she got home later that day, she sat at her desk, opened up her laptop and began to write a blog post that would change Malta's political history. She wrote a message to the Labour Party's membership, which was about to elect a new deputy leader. The favourite was Conrad Mitzi. And she warned them. She said, If you elect Conrad Mitzi, then you will end up wearing a Panama hat with him and you will take the whole country down with you. The Labour Party and the government knew instantly what she was referring to. 
Mitzi's Panamanian company, and they knew that once she was that far, she would soon find Keith Schembri, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, also had the same financial setup. And so it went into overdrive. It started pumping out propaganda, story after story, slandering my mother, discrediting her reporting, and labelling her as corrupt. I want you to listen to my favourite interview that my mother gave. Radio New Zealand called her for a live comment at around four in the morning Malta time. Malta independent columnist Daphne Caruana Galizia first broke news of the Panama firm. This was just after the Panama Papers broke globally and so the world could see what our government officials had done and what they were hiding. And she jumped on it. You can hear in her voice that sense of urgency, the excitement of a scoop that a reporter never loses, and the disbelief at what our government has done. And um, they expected never to be discovered, but they were discovered. And the whole thing erupted into a political controversy in Malta. However, the Prime Minister is backing both his Chief of Staff and his Health and Energy Minister, who has since made Deputy Leader of the Labour Party, the ruling Labour Party too. These companies were set up when they were already in office. So it is quite obvious that they are used for money laundering purposes. They're going to be used for money laundering purposes. The Health and Energy Minister is responsible for most of the major contracts signed by the Maltese government over the last three years. And the secrecy, though, just to get to the point, the reason they want this kept secret is what? It's, it's obvious. It's because what the, whatever they want to have sheltered by that company and the New Zealand Trust is illegal. Nobody, would, nobody in their position would open up a company in Panama and a, a trust in New Zealand to shelter anything that they legitimately own. So whatever's going into their companies... Um, the fruit of corruption, backhanders, kickbacks, graft, that kind of thing. It is Daphne Caruana Galizia. It's 22 and a half minutes past nine. I remember speaking to my mother after she gave that interview and she said to me, they can't survive this. People have got to see through what they're doing. And Muscat's behaviour and reaction to to the to that story was i would say uncharacteristic of him you know in the past when his ministers had been found doing something wrong he sometimes very quickly and sometimes with some reluctance took serious action in this case there was a lot of reluctance to take any action there was the sort of spin that I had only been used to hearing from a nationalist administration, you know, disingenuous comments, mean comments towards the media from this very open, liberal, progressive leader who had made the media, you know, such an ally of his. And so things, this kind of facade started to crumble because he should have been equally horrified as, as were his voters and supporters and, and the rest of the public, he, he should have, you know, been even more horrified and betrayed by his two best men doing these, doing these things behind his back. But he didn't. He stood by them. He protected them. He, he tried to downplay what they had done. You know, suddenly 
we had to question his own intentions and and his own um, appetite for corruption. It was a, a big change, and and to a journalist like myself who who witnessed that change, it became extremely clear that this guy now had something very big to hide. But nothing happened. Muscat kept standing by Mitsyan Shkembri. People would talk about their Panama companies openly, in parliament, in the street, in the press, and Muscat would keep defending them, keep standing by them. Until, exactly a year after the Panama Papers first broke, Muscat took his biggest decision yet. I'm in High Park and we're along the route I used to take to get home from the office every day at the start of 2017. And often when I would walk through High Park, I call my mother. And I remember one call from May 2017 when I asked her, why do you think Muscat has called a general election a year early? A year early when he has nothing to lose, when he remains so popular when he has no chance of losing. He, at that point, was as popular as he'd ever been, perhaps even more popular, despite the Panama Papers. And I remember my mother saying to me, and I'll never forget, she said, whatever the reason is, it's so big, we can't even see it. You know, he kept saying it was to shore up support after the Panama Papers and related stories, But the truth is, that story had come out a year earlier, and there was nothing, as far as we knew, that had to be revealed. So when he made that decision to call the election a year early, it became this kind of big puzzle. And for my mother, it became almost an obsession. And she said, the key to understanding everything that Muscat is trying to do with this country is an answer to that question. Why did he call a general election a year early? We didn't know it at the time, in May 2017, but whoever it was who took out a contract on her life did it at that time. Five months after that Hyde Park phone call, the contract on my mother's life was acted on. I was in London, thousands of miles away, but Matthew was at home, working alongside my mother. At home today, there's my eldest brother, Matthew, and I'm going to talk to him for the first time about the 16th of October, 2017. So Matthew was here at home, working at the same desk with my mother when the bomb went off just a few hundred meters away from the house. And what I know about that afternoon I know from the press reports because I've never actually sat down at any point over the past two years with Matthew to talk about that day. Towards the end of summer, the the government was behaving in an extremely arrogant manner, acting as though it was all over, that it was a legitimate government, that it had sort of vanquished the conspiracy of investigative journalists and was riding on an all-time high. In the meantime, my mother and I were working on this major leak 
and one of the sources that she was speaking to at the time was someone who was leaking documents and my mother uh, asked me for help with that for help with receiving the documents from this source and again I was filled with the same feeling that here we were another year another massive leak another massive corruption scandal of course at the time I was uh, I was working on it very calmly um, we were under a lot of pressure but I felt as though we were on the right side and of course it was at that moment that that my mother was assassinated you were sharing the same desk upstairs mm-hmm. in the dining room you were both working there she was on one side you were on the other um, and that day the 16th of October uh, what happened but it it was a monday i didn't have breakfast i didn't stop for lunch and i remember just before my mother left the house to go to the bank she she put a plate of tomatoes and mozzarella in front of me with some breadsticks because we hadn't eaten anything all day and i i devoured it uh, and after that she she published her final blog post and left for the bank. The next thing you hear is an explosion. And you've you've said that you knew it was a bomb straight away. How you know how it's in if you think about it it's an extraordinary thing to feel. So why why did you think it's a bomb straight away? The first reason is that for some reason that week i i really started to get worried about um about my mother being followed i don't know why i i had this um i had this really bad feeling that people were following my mother because during that week we were both meeting a lot of sources and um, coming and going from the house we were both sharing a car and I don't know why I just had this feeling that someone was tracking us or following us I, I even thought that someone had stuck a, a tracking device to the bottom of the car and I kept thinking to myself I have to get the car checked for one of these devices so it, it was that feeling that um that we were being followed which turned out to be correct because as we now know the the people who put the bomb in the car were following us and it was also that it couldn't have been anything else when i heard the noise it's like in in a fraction of a second in my head i went through all of the possibilities of what that noise could be like a computer working to solve a problem very quickly and i thought it's a car bomb i i just i just thought it straight away or or like my mind came to that conclusion within within a fraction of a second okay so you you hear the bomb and then what do you do i i remember i jumped out of my chair uh, i I ran to the door 
when I opened it, there was this bright stream of light because it was a very sunny day. The dogs were barking at me like crazy. And I felt like all the blood had drained from my body. I just felt like I was going to collapse. But I just sort of pulled myself together, ran towards the gate, opened it. And as I looked towards the road, I, I saw a, a, a gigantic plume of smoke, like, like a tower of, of very thick, black, bubbling smoke. Um, the kind of smoke you get when, you, when, when a pile of tires is burning. And again, at that point, I thought, my God, this is it. And I, I, I just sort of bolted for the road. When I, when I got to the, to the point where, where the hill starts to level off, I could see that the road was on fire, but there was a moment of confusion because I, I couldn't see the car. So there was fire on the road, bits of metal everywhere, but there was no car and I, I, I couldn't see the source of the smoke. Um, but it was just because I was panicking. So I, then I, I looked further into the distance and I could see that the smoke was coming from a gigantic fireball in the middle of a field further, further down about, about a hundred meters away. So I, I ran towards that. It was the car. Um, there was a moment of hope where I, the car seemed to look white under the fire and I thought, okay, it's not my mom's car because hers was charcoal gray. But then I saw the first two letters of the number plate, QQZ, and I I realized that it, it's her car. Um, it was it was just absolutely horrible. There was nothing I could do. I of course never felt so helpless in my entire life, and it was just like. Sort of everything was was assaulting me. the The sound of the horn blaring was was just like piercing my ears. Um, the obviously toxic smell of the smoke, the heat of the fire. Um, it was just like it was just as though the. The bomb was also to, designed to to assault anyone who came to the scene, um, and not just my mom. And what? At what point did help arrive? If any help arrived, it's very difficult for me to sort of remember the time, um, or remember how much time passed between what and what, because I I just have sort of stills and clips in my mind the the first people to arrive were two police officers they stopped they they were they were in a in in just a blind panic they were very young guys they, they had obviously never seen anything like this before um they they pulled a fire extinguisher out of the boot of the car uh ran up to the car and then one of them just dropped the fire extinguisher 
and I started screaming at them, what are you doing, what are you doing? I tried to take the fire extinguisher from them, and they started trying to tell me, there's nothing we can do, there's nothing we can do. One of them started crying, I remember, and after that I, I don't remember much. It was around this point that I was calling people. M my aunt came to the scene because she was the first person who I was able to get through to on the phone. And she lives relatively close by. After that, I... I think I got through to my father because I was calling my, my brother Andrew, but he was in a meeting. Then I got through to Andrew. Then eventually I got through to you. Okay. Thanks, Math. Yeah. It's okay. No, this is really good. And I'm sorry you have to. No, yeah. don't worry. It's important to do it. Yeah, I know. It's okay. It was clear to us from day one that this was related to her work. My mother had been working on a lot of investigations. So many, in fact, it meant that there were a lot of people who wanted her dead. But who exactly would go this far? My mother's murder is written by me, Paul Caruana Galizia. The producer is Gary Marshall. Original music by Tom Kinsella. The executive producer is Kerry Thomas. Keach Gambry and Conrad Mitzi deny allegations that their offshore companies were used for kickbacks. Joseph Muscat denies that he had any prior knowledge of the assassination. The homicide investigation and criminal proceedings are ongoing. Hello, I'm Steph from Tortoise. Paul works right next to me in the office, so I knew a little about his mother's story. But listening to Paul on this podcast, it really hit home what Paul carries with him on a daily basis, about what he and his family have endured. But the story's not over yet, and there are two episodes still to come. Please do subscribe today through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you normally listen. And if you've been as moved as I have by what you've heard, do share it with friends and family. We want Daphne's story to be heard everywhere. Shares, likes and recommendations all help. Thank you. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, I'm John Curtis. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. This week on Trendy, the monarchy. A year after the coronation and as King Charles returns to work, what do we think of it? And how has that changed over time? To listen to the episode, search for Trendy on Tortoise News, wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed to make sure you don't miss an episode.